Well, this morning we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke's, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, focusing on the parables. And so last week, what we did was we took a look at the idea uh, that what is lost and when it's found, there's great rejoicing that, that happens with that. And remember, the context of that was that Jesus was hanging out with sinners and receiving these sinners and tax collectors, and the Pharisees said, this, this, isn't, this isn't right. This can't be true. Like, how can this man of religion be hanging out with these sinners? And so the Pharisees had something to say about that. And Jesus' response to that uh, criticism was to tell three parables. And he told the first parable about the lost sheep. And he says, surely someone who has 100 sheep but loses one, would he not leave the 99 and go after the one? And then when he brings it back, would there not be rejoicing in what was lost being found? The second parable was the parable of the lost coin. And we get this idea um, that God is searching. He, he, is, he is always looking. And he never loses focus. And of the first parable, what we took away was that there's this idea that we are the lost sheep. And we wander away out into danger. And unless we are rescued, our death is certain. And that's what, that's what, what we are. Is we are dead in our trespasses and sins unless... Christ, the good shepherd, comes and rescues us. But not only that, when he does so, we see that he doesn't stop looking for us. He doesn't stop pursuing us because he sees us as valuable. And while we might get distracted and and have uh, priority shifts and lose focus, the one who searches does not lose focus. But then we also took a look at the prodigal son and the idea that the son who wandered, he had thoughts of home. And that was what, in part, drove him to go back home. But the thing that really helped was that he expected to be received. He didn't doubt his reception. And so those are the things that we looked at last week and getting in preparation for this week. I want you to have those concepts still in your mind. um, But we're going to continue and take a look at what it means to be rich towards God. So as Jonathan has already read, our text is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. And actually, um, I would expand this passage a little bit. We didn't read all of it, but I would expand it all the way to 34. So we're going to take a look at from 13 to 34. We won't read it all together, but just know that that's where our context is this morning. And the major doctrine that I want to defend is that when we love and trust God, we are rich towards him. When we love and trust God, we are rich towards him. Well, what does that mean? Well, I want to unpack that for us this morning by making two stops. The first stop we'll make is we're actually going to take a look at the root and foolishness of poverty towards God. So that'll be in your outline. And then the second stop that we will make is we'll take a look at the way to be rich towards God. The way to being rich towards God. That's the second one. So the root and foolishness of poverty towards God. How does that happen? What drives that? What's at the root of that? And then what's the solution? The way to being rich towards God towards God. And as we get started this morning, I do want to put up a, 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 a what I call an attention statement, something that should get in your mind and mess you up a little bit. And this is from J.C. Robb. It says, the man who does well for himself is the man who gives up everything for Christ's sake. The man who does well for himself is the man who gives up everything for Christ's sake. So this is going to be a time of reflection It's going to be a time of being challenged by the word of the Lord as we jump into this. But I want that to be in your mind. And ask yourself, am I a person who's doing well for myself because I give up everything for Christ's sake? And that'll be a part of the heart as we unpack the scripture this morning. So we'll start off with our first stop here. And the root and foolishness of poverty towards God. 
And you see in this passage um, that, that there's actually some tension here. It says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And this is Jesus saying, what, what is this? What's going on here? I don't, I'm not your judge in this matter. But he says, take care, verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. So what Jesus was already seeing was he saw that there was a heart of covetousness already there. And he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That sentence would be a sentence that we would do well to not forget. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And so to send the point home, what Jesus does is he says he tells them a parable. And he says, hey, hey consider this. There's a land. And the land did well. It produced a lot. And there's this rich person who says, what shall I do with all of this? I don't have a place to store my crops. And he says, I've got an idea. What I'm going to do, I'm going to tear down my old barn. I'm going to build a bigger new barn that's going to store all of this. But here's the heart of it. What does he say? He says, I will do this. In verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. And at first pass, you may think, that's actually kind of my plan. (laughs) Isn't that our plan for many of us? Work hard, store up lots of money, coast until you die. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And so when we read this, it actually kind of hurts a little bit. Because many of us are doing this exact thing. We are in a way heading towards being rich fools. But not to say that there's there's anything wrong with planning for the future. Actually, all throughout Scripture, definitely in the Proverbs, you see um, that there's wisdom and storing for the future. It says, look at the ant, right? It stores up. There's a a rightness in that, considering there's a time that may come when there will be little. We see famine coming all throughout Scripture. And what do they do when the famine's coming? They prepare for it, right? So God's provision sometimes is giving someone insight into a famine's coming. It's not wrong to make plans for the future. What is wrong is to hope in yourself for salvation in the future. And we'll unpack that here in just a second. But this is the part that God rebukes. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So he's, he's, he's implying that they're going to go to somebody else. Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this is what I want us to unpack here, is this idea of the root and foolishness of poverty towards God, because this is the fool who is not rich towards God. The first thing that I think that we have to recognize um, that drives this poverty towards God is, is discontentment. And I want to put it on the screen for you. Write it down if you want to. How do you do it? What's a good way to be, be poor towards God or to express poverty towards God? First thing, desire more than God has given. Be discontent. If you want to make it a surefire thing that you are, that you are uh, expressing poverty towards God, be discontent with what God has already given you. All right? So think of all the good things that you've got from God, and I want you to do this. Tell God, this isn't enough. Doesn't that feel great? Think of all the good that he's given you and say, this is not enough. Because what I want to do is I want to be poor towards you, God. I want to express my poverty towards you. A good way to do that, if you're interested, 
is to look at everything that God has given you and tell him it's not enough. Be discontent, because discontentment breeds poverty towards God. Um, because really at the root of it, um, that's exactly what we're, we're, we're expressing. Um, and so, you know, when we start to look at this, I want to ask you, do you feel this struggle? Um, and one of the ways that you can really search this out in your heart is, do you feel entitled, entitled to more than you have? Do you feel uh, that, that really... You're entitled to more money, a better house, a better car, or a better status. Do you, do you feel like God owes that to you? Do you feel that that would be rightfully yours? If you feel that way, you're on your way to discontentment. And when you look at what God has provided, can you say that you're content? Or do you tell yourself this lie that in order to be happy, what I need is a little more? How often have we said that to ourselves? We're not content with what God has given us. And what we say in our minds is we say, if only, if only I had whatever it is. Because that's exactly what we start to do. And when we start to express poverty towards God, we first off desire more than God has given. We are discontent. But second, we misplace our hope. We start to see possessions as a mean of salvation. So whenever you have this phrase come into your heart and your mind, have pause. If this thing comes into you where you say, if only I had X, Y, or Z. If only I would get a little bit of a raise. If only, you know, today I make $12,000. If only I could make it to 20, all my problems would be solved. If today I make $100,000, if only I could make it to 150, all my problems would be solved. If only I would get the recognition for the work that I deserve, then I would feel fulfilled and complete. You start to put that if only, doesn't matter what it is, that is a way in which you start to actually misplace your hope. You start to see possessions as a means of salvation. And that's exactly what's happening here, I believe, when this, this person it says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I think that this is a way in which he was expressing his trust in the things that he had. And his, his material possessions were a type of salvation. And that's exactly what we start to do, is we start to look at the things that we have, and, and we start to look at the things that cause us anxiety. And when we start to have anxiety, we start to worry about the future. And we start to wonder how in the world we might be saved from these things that are causing us anxiety. So here's a good thing that you should have in your mind. Um, when you sigh, pray for contentment. When you start to feel anxiety bubble up in your heart, when you sigh, you know those things that happen when you just go, oh, God. When you feel that, that's a good time to pray for contentment. Because what you have to recognize is the only true Savior, the only true solution to anxiety is trusting in God. Because we'll get worried about our future. We don't know what's going to come. And we start to think things like, if only I had we start to say, um, God, I know you've given me some good things, but it's really not enough if you would just give me a little more. I see this thing coming, and I'm, I'm stressed out. I don't know how it's all going to work out. And so you start, to, you start to look for salvation. 
And what we have to recognize is that our salvation cannot come from our bank accounts, our 401ks, any of these things. Because what, what happens? What do we see all the time happening all throughout the world? Systems crumbling, systems crashing, stock market blows up. I, I, you go through a number of different things and you start to look at it and you say, I do not know what the future holds. You start to look at it, you start to think, I'm doing the best I can, but at any moment, something could go wrong, couldn't it? How many times have you seen somebody, um, they're doing perfectly well, and then one day, and then the next day, they get this terminal report? Do you think their money is going to save them? Look, look at Steve Jobs. He had plenty of money, didn't he? What happened still? He still died of cancer. And it would have been foolish if anyone would look at him and say, well, if he only had a little bit more money, if he only had a little bit more resources, we can never hope and trust in our resources. Because even if we don't lose them, even if the stock market doesn't crash, even if you don't lose your job, it still ultimately cannot be your savior. And so we've got to look at, we've got to look at this idea of that when we start to misplace our hope, what we are actually doing is we see our possessions as a means of salvation. And when anxiety comes, when we begin to sigh, we have to tell ourselves, God, I am on the verge of being discontent. And you have to recognize that in your own heart and pray for that. And it's not just a force yourself to be content. You're actually asking for supernatural and divine assistance. Because our human nature is to not be content. Our human nature is to say, all I need is a little more. So if you think that you're going to pray yourself into it as a works of your own to be more content, all I got to do is tell myself, be more content. Hey, Rob, be more content. Okay, I don't feel it. <laughs> right? What do you have to do? You have to pray for divine, supernatural assistance in this thing that is primarily against your nature. Your nature is to be a discontented creature, a creature that wants more. As the, as, 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 uh, in that, that movie, uh, I think it was Troy, and he says, you've conquered everything. What, what, what do you want? He says, it's easy. I want what every man wants, a little bit more. That's, that is exactly what it is. You've got to fight that, but you can't fight it on your own. You've got to pray for it. But as we're talking about this, the root and foolishness of poverty towards God, one of the other ways that you can be uh, expressing poverty towards God, I believe, is to fail to keep watch over your heart and letting covetousness grow. You start to see the seeds of covetousness start to grow. Because what happens when anxiety comes and we unknowingly begin to let those seeds of covetousness begin to take root, um, what we actually do, if we don't actually recognize them and start to pray through that, um, what can actually start to happen is that we can have a sinful desire for that which we do not have. You start to produce in you a sinful desire for that which you do not have. And I think some of the practical expressions of this, if you're wondering if you have this, if you have the seeds of, of, of covetousness growing in your heart, here's a good test. Um, do you hate those who have what you covet? Do you hate those who have what you covet? And you might think, no, I don't hate anybody. But think, if somebody's got what you think you should have, what you think you're entitled to, what you think you truly should deserve, are your thoughts towards them rejoicing? Or are your thoughts towards them jealousy? 
because jealousy is hating somebody for having what you think you deserve. So ask yourself, the things that I'm most worried about, the things that I think that I'm entitled to, how do I know if covetousness is starting to take root in my heart? Do I have a hatred for those who have what I covet? Then also, do I have hatred towards God for not giving me what I feel I should have? Are you mad at God because he hasn't given you what you think he should give you? You think, I don't hate God. Well, sometimes it starts to look like we don't want anything to do with him. Sometimes it starts to look like, why would I pray to someone who's withholding good from me? You start to get angry with God. You start to get bitter because you believe that you're entitled to something and he's withholding it from you. And that makes you bitter. And then you look around and you see somebody who's got something that you think you should have. And actually, if you look at it, you know, I'm a better person than them. Right? Have you ever done that? You think, I'm better than them. They're living a sinful life. And here I am walking according to the precepts of the Lord and God has blessed them. How fair is this? What is that? And then you start to look for every flaw you can possibly find in them. Why? Because it helps you feel more entitled to the thing you think you should have. But that's a trap. And so I think that when we look at this, how should we grow poverty towards God and be complete fools? We should desire more than God has given us, which means practice discontentment. We should misplace our hope, which means we should see our possessions as a means of salvation. And three, we should fail to keep watch over our heart. And what we should do is we should foster covetousness and let the seeds of covetousness grow inside of our hearts. If you want to be po- uh, express poverty towards God, do those three things. I promise you, you will have success in expressing poverty towards God. Why? Because you will hoard everything for yourself. You'll begin to, as this rich fool did, build up wealth for who? For himself. Having no intentions of sharing it. But... One last set of questions, and then we'll move on. Have you ever asked, why me? Have you ever asked that? Has anything bad come into your life, and your first response to it is, why me? I know I've done that before. Um, But seldom do we ever ask, when good comes to our life, why me? Isn't that weird? Why? Because we think, well, yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. Good is supposed to happen to me because I'm a good person. I've been, I've been doing right, right? Sometimes I joke at work, and sometimes it's a, probably an indication of where my theology may be, is sometimes I say, oh, look, everything went right in this project. Must be all that clean living I've been doing. And everyone laughs, struggles, ha, 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 and I'm like, wait, do I really believe that? I don't, but sometimes we can, right? When good comes our way, we're like, it's about time. About time I got recognized for all this good work I've been putting in. And then when bad things happen to us, what do we say? Why me? I don't deserve this. When my parents get sick, why me? When I lose my job, why me? Why? Because we've inversed it. We think that we are entitled to good. And we don't, we're not surprised by good. We expect good all the time. And when trials come our way, we are surprised. And we question, why me? Here's another task. Have you ever said, why them? When someone comes into good fortune, maybe they get the promotion, maybe they come into some money, or maybe they come into something good in their life, and you say, you say to yourself, why them? So there's the, why me? Then there's the, why them? Right? You see the difference between that? If you write it down, it doesn't really translate. But if you express it like that, there is a difference, isn't there? Why me? Like, this shouldn't be happening to me. And then, why them? It's a question. Who are they? What have they done? Why do they deserve this? 
So those are two tests that we have to look at when we're wrestling with whether or not we have covetousness beginning to grow up in our hearts and whether or not we're starting to foster poverty towards God. But here, let me teach us uh, through the scriptures, I believe, a way in which we can actually be rich towards God because that's what we really want to do. The first one's a test. The second one's let's apply this. Let's make sure we wrap our heads around what this means. And I believe actually the answer to this problem is in verses 22 through 34. And he said to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider this. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Do you see that? Verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father what knows that you need them. Do you see this? This isn't God saying, your concerns are, Ill are uh, illegitimate. Sometimes that's what we kind of feel like. We're like, God probably looks at me and thinks that all my needs and all the things that I desire, they're all illegitimate. But literally it says that God knows you need some things. So our needs are not lost on God. There should be great comfort that comes in that, knowing that the things that we are anxious about are legitimate things. Now anxiety is the wrong response. Because anxiety is actually the practice of mistrust. So we'll talk about that here in just a second. But note that, that God knows you need them. Verse 31, instead seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Huh, wow, we're all familiar with that verse. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, verse 33 is a little bit of a challenge because it's, when you look at it, you're like, things are going well. God understands my needs. He hears me. He understands me, right? Okay, he knows. Good, yep. I'm going to seek your kingdom, Lord. Good, everything's good. Fear not. Yep, good pleasure to give me the kingdom. All right, keep going. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy, <laughs> period. Whoa. <laughs> Maybe that's why that wasn't in the scripture reading this morning. I'm joking, I'm joking. Do you see that? That is an absolute flipping the model on its head. Because the model that the world will teach you is to hold on to your possessions, build as much wealth as you can so that you can provide for yourself. So that you can provide for your needs. But this model literally says, do something else. Have no fear, for God's good pleasure is to give you, give you the kingdom. How do you get it? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags 
that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So let's unpack this a little bit. I think one of the first things that we should consider when we're asking the question, God, how can I be rich towards you? I think one of the first things is that we should consider God's universal providential care. And I see this expressly in verse 24. It says, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they neither have storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. I think that is one of the first steps in us trusting God and being rich towards him is considering the fact that first he has this universal providential care that he cares for all of creation. Remember the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He's feeding everybody. He's taking care of everybody. And I have been um, spending time at the University of Tulsa uh, in helping with the BCM over there and training up their student teachers. And it's been an interesting thing as I sit with these young folks, and many of them are in, in different disciplines and, you know, if you want to start a conversation at any campus, basically you can start with what's your name and what's your major. That's always good. That's a good thing. You can, you can get a conversation going. So I talk to these kids all the time. And um, so, you know, they're coming up. I'm a chemical engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer. I'm blah, 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 blah. And I've had some great conversations with them exploring what does that look like to be um, in ministry yet be an engineer? What does that look like to serve God through the sciences? What does it look like to serve God as a professional? And just this last week, I sat down with a young man who is, is um, training up to become a mechanical engineer, and he was questioning, is this something that I can even do? Can I do ministry? Can I serve God in this? And I, and I told him, I said, man, here's my story. I've been able to stay um, in the technical field, yet I'm still in the ministry, and but I can see wonderful things that have happened through my ministry at work. There was a guy that I used to just have interesting conversation after interesting conversation for over a year, and he would tell me, Christians are dumb, they're, they're idiots, they're hypocrites, they don't know anything. And so day after day, I would, just, I would, I would try to answer his questions the best I could, uh, and ends up, he leaves the company, and I don't see him again. But I, but I just, every day I would just pray and I would just say, God, let me, let me share the gospel with him. May, may I answer the questions that are maybe keeping him from faith. Maybe he's got some intellectual reasons and he can't make that leap because of these. Even though I know I can't give him faith, if I can make that jump easier, if I can be in the bridge building business, build, build a bridge from skepticism to faith, if I can make that easier, if I can fill the potholes on the road to faith, I want to do that. Well, then he leaves and I don't see him again. No, no idea where he went. And I was at, uh, actually, Rick Cuscio's house um, uh, about a year later. And we're hanging out in a shop, and he goes, hey, there's a guy coming over that you, you need to meet. He just became uh, a believer. He got baptized. His whole family's gotten baptized. And it's a really cool story. I'm like, all right, let's meet him. So this guy comes in, and so we're talking. And he goes, where do you work? And I said, here's where I work. And he goes, do you know? And he says the guy's name I used to hang out with all the time. I said, Yeah. And he goes, well, he's the one who led me to the Lord. <laughs> what? So I got, I'm going to, I'm like, hey, hey, bro, what is up, right? So, okay, you got some explaining to do. And he says, man, you will never know what our time together meant. I'm like, man. And he goes, I've been saved. My family's been baptized. We're tithing. We're plugged into a church. And that guy's my neighbor. And I shared Christ with him. I'm like, oh, my Lord. 
So you never know where God is going to show up. And you never know the ways in which he's going to use you in faithful ministry. And so I'm telling this young man this. I'm saying, you can serve God as a mechanical engineer. Because you know what? I believe Luther got it right. says that the providential care of God comes through very normal ways. That God feeds the whole world. And you know what? Sometimes it comes through the milkmaid. I was like, yeah, God gave us the milk. Yeah, he did. How did he do it? We gave us the cow. Right, great. That's a good first start. Who milked the cow? All the way down till it gets on your table. Thank God for his universal providential care that there is this whole process that includes people in all walks of life. And every member is participating in God's providential care. That's beautiful. So when you're wondering, how can I be rich towards God? You know what's a, a good thing to fight the covetousness and anxiety is be reminded, remind yourself of God's universal providential care. He cares about the world. But two, consider God's personal providential care. It's not just that he cares about the whole world and is providing for everybody and he feeds everybody, he feeds the birds, he feeds the animals, he feeds us, he feeds the believers and the non-believers, yes. But there's a special particular way in which God's providential care is personal and that he cares for you. He cares for me. You're not lost. God's, God knows the number of hairs on your head, not the numbers of all the heads uh, summed together. Like, yeah, that's part of his Excel sheet somewhere. It's probably some heavenly Excel sheet, you know. Here's all the numbers of hair on every person's head. But your name is listed in there. He knows you. And his providential care is towards you. Uniquely. Which is a beautiful thing when you look at this, verse 32. Look at this. It says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's desire is to help you, to grow you, to support you, to prosper you. Why? So that you can do 33. Look at 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. I think we're all pretty good with 32. The 33 is the hard part. But here's the thing. When we are looking at this and believing that God is, God is actually caring for our needs, he's going to give us the things that we need to sustain us. But not only that, he's going to give us things that then we can give away to help others. So if all you're doing is hoarding, all you're doing is taking and keeping for yourself, you're missing his unique and personal providential care, which includes he wants to use you as part of his, his arm of blessing others. So there's nothing wrong with making good money at work. There's nothing wrong with being a smart business person or an engineer or an inventor. What would be wrong is to hope in that as your eternal salvation. What would be wrong in that is to hoard up and store up wealth for yourself as if you were able to save yourself. The proper response is, is to give. But I want you to take this practical note. So take note of God's provision in the moment he provides, then remember it often. Take note in the moment when God provides, and then remember it often. It's not enough to pray for things, and then when God answers the prayer, we forget about it. We should pray, watch, think, then reflect. Because when we are constantly in the work and business of reflecting on the ways in God, that God has providentially, providentially cared for us, it builds faith over time. So remember the ways God has provided for you, 
through others as you practice generosity. But then also preach to yourself that God will provide for your future as he alone knows your needs. I believe this, and I think it's, it's something that we've got to look at, um, and we've got to resist the lie that we sometimes tell ourselves that, that we believe that we know better than God. And you may say, no, I've never said that. I've never, I've never said that I know better than God. Don't, don't put that in my mouth. Yeah, we have. And we do it when we worry. Because what you're literally saying is, I know what's going to happen, and what's going to happen is bad, and God's not thinking about this. I need to help him. You're literally doing that. You're saying, I know better than you. You haven't thought about this. I have, because I haven't slept in weeks thinking about it. I don't know what you've been doing, God, but I've been up all night thinking about it. And here's what's going to happen. I'm telling you, God, this is what's going to happen. Why? Because I know. Do you? Do I? No. You don't know tomorrow. You know who does? He does. So when we start to believe the lie that we know better than God, and if you say, I never said that, yeah, you do. Every time you worry, that's what you're saying. But he alone knows our future. He alone has ordained our steps. And he is the one who loves us and is alone able to truly protect and provide. You can't protect for your family. You think you can. You think you're a man? Yeah, me too. But how many times are we literally helpless in protecting them truly? I can't tell you, tell you how many times that I'm off in some other state or another country working, and I'm like, I wonder what's happening at home. Are you with your family every moment? No. Are you filtering everything that goes into your children's hearts and minds through their friends and through their schools and through the media? No. You alone cannot protect or provide for your family. If you think you do, sit down. Because there's one person in the whole universe who actually knows the future, who actually knows our needs, who's actually ordained our steps, and is actually uniquely qualified to protect and provide. And he's the one that we have to trust. And when we trust him, that's what opens up the gates to our generosity. Because God knows our future, he knows our needs, and basically, we know neither, truly. But he does, and he loves us. So as we stand this morning, I want to close. I love, I love the idea that we can trust the one who loves us perfectly, and that he's always working everything for our good and for his glory. And the man who seeks the kingdom of God will not lack anything that is for his good or for God's glory. I believe that, that the one who seeks the kingdom of God will not lack anything for their good or for God's glory. And I invite you to believe that. And if you don't believe it, I pray, I pray that you pray that God help you believe that, to live as if it is true.